0: Hello everyone, I'm Tim Lever, one of the partners specializing in employment law in the team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Welcome to this, the first in a new season of Espresso Podcasts, looking at topical issues for our clients over a cup of coffee. So sit back, relax, make a hot drink of your choice. Uh, Today we're engaging in a little bit of crystal ball gazing, exploring some of the key changes in employment rights that might be coming down the line in the relative near future. While at this stage, clearly no one knows with any certainty, It's probably a reasonable assumption that there may be a change in government in the foreseeable future. And in our experience, any change of government is invariably a catalyst for significant changes in our world of employment law. In particular, if Sakhir Starmer inherits the keys to Downing Street at some point next year, there's been some talk of some fairly eye-catching proposals. With me today, I've got my colleagues, Peter Frost. Hello. And Sian McKinley. Hello. Uh, Peter's one of the original founders of the employment group here at HSF and claims to have vivid memories of not only the Blair and Brown Labour governments of the late 90s and noughties, but also the Wilson and Callaghan Labour governments of the 70s. So we look forward to his insights. I think, Peter, this might be your first Espresso podcast. It is indeed. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, This certainly isn't Sean's first podcast. As regular listeners will know, Sean's one of our senior associates in the employment team here. Who not only has a keen interest in politics but also regularly speaks on developments in employment law and indeed on the ethical use of artificial intelligence last month in fact she appeared before a parliamentary select committee to give evidence about the use of ai in the workplace this podcast comes in two parts in this part one we'll give an overview of the key proposals included in the green paper issued by the labor party last year Uh, Angela Rayner repeated some of those proposals earlier this week in her speech to the Labour Party conference, although the speech was a bit light on detail on how the proposals would in fact be achieved. In the second part, we will focus on proposals that we think are most likely to make their way into the employment bill. Miss Rayner said we could expect in the first 100 days of the Labour government. We'll also be looking at how those could affect employers and what steps employers should be considering uh, taking now in anticipation of them. So we'll kick off. Uh, Two questions for you first, Peter, if that's all right. Uh, First, what's your impression of the nature and scale of the changes being considered by the current Labour Party? And second, how do you think those plans compare with previous approaches you've seen from Labour?
1: Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, The Green Paper certainly lacks nothing in ambition. And I see that it's termed a new deal for working people. But the key factor for me is that Labour, and in particular Angela Rayner, who's leading the charge in this area, well, she and they care passionately about employment rights. And some might argue that that stands in rather stark contrast to the current administration. Now, of course, this is nothing new on the political left, uh, in my experience. Now, despite my longevity, I don't go quite as far back as Teddy Roosevelt in the 1930s, but I do recall that Barbara Castle in Harold Wilson's 1970s government preached the virtues of a new social contract with the TUC to heal the discord caused by widespread strikes. Sound familiar? Anyway, didn't work so well then. Uh, More recently, Tony Blair and Cherie, his wife, uh, who if anecdotes are to be believed may actually have first met in our offices during a function, how about that? Well, they were both employment lawyers keen on expanding employment rights. But whereas Ms. Castle focused on the unions and Tony Blair focused on individual employment rights, in fact, he and Peter Mandelson did frankly pretty little for trade unions, Angela Rayner seems committed to legislating across both fronts. Now, a particularly intriguing feature of the proposals uh, is the extent to which some of them bear more than a passing similarity to some of the laws in the EU. Good examples would be the suggested new single status of worker that Sean will be speaking about in a minute and proposals to introduce sectoral collective bargaining that I'll be covering later on. But, and this is the but, the proposals seemingly come with what can only really be described as a Basel faultiest determination, not to mention the EU. In fact, when putting forward the proposals, only New Zealand is called out as a comparator.
0: And and that's quite an interesting point in and of itself in light of Sir Keir Starmer's most recent comments about EU convergence. Uh, Sean, can you give us a little bit of uh, an overview as to what look to be the key proposals when considering the proposed new rights from an individual perspective, individual employment rights?
2: Thanks, Tim. The one that stood out most for me is the plan to change to new single status of worker. So currently, as the listeners of this podcast will most likely know, we have a tripartite structure of employees and workers and then the self-employed. And it's essentially a hierarchy with respect to employment protections and rights. So self-employed contractors generally have the fewest employment-related rights. Workers have access to some rights in this area, such as entitlement, annual leave and national minimum wage and protections from discrimination. And employees have all the rights of workers, plus some additional ones, like protection from unfair dismissal. And it was in fact the Blair Labour government that was responsible for extending certain rights to this middle category of workers. So Labour's position now is that a new status of worker will cover, and to use their words, all but the genuinely self-employed. And it seems that Labour will now want all such workers to enjoy the same suite of rights as employees do now. And it's important to remember that many existing workers regard themselves as self-employed, not least from a tax perspective, and that they, the workers, see that as a real positive. So what Labour's proposal actually means in practice isn't clear. But if this does make the final cut, it raises some real issues and not least those relating to tax. Will all these workers now be taxed under the pay-as-you-earn regime instead of under Schedule D as now? Will both workers and employers have to pay national insurance contributions at the employee rate? It's interesting that the CIPD recently made a similar proposal for new worker status, although with a similar lack of detail and analysis. Um, and a Labour peer and a Labour MP introduced draft legislation in 2021, which would have had the effect of widening many employment rights to individual individuals engaged to provide labour. That's the wording of the draft legislation and not genuinely in business on their own account. And the burden would be on the alleged employer to show that the individual was genuinely self-employed. Now, that, Particular bill has not progressed through the House of Commons since last year. But it is interesting to note the similarities here with the new EU Platform Workers Directive, which is designed to grant further rights for so called gig workers through a presumption of employee status. So, following closely behind is the plan to extend the range of employment rights, for which no qualifying period of service is required. Sick pay, parental leave, and flexible working rights are the least controversial examples. And as a reminder, currently, employees have to be employed for at least 26 weeks to be entitled to certain parental rights. The current government's already introduced legislation to make the right to request flexible working a day one right. However, the Labour Green Paper also includes unfair dismissal. The qualifying period for unfair dismissal has bounced between two years and six months ever since the legislation was first introduced over 40 years ago. The Conservative governments of Edward Heath, Margaret Thatcher and David Cameron all introduced this two-year qualifying period that we have now. And it was the Labour governments of Harold Wilson and Tony Blair who were responsible for the reductions in length. Although in Tony Blair's case, we should probably remember it was prompted by a decision of the Supreme Court. And on a related note, another advantageous proposal for employees is this proposal to remove the cap on compensation for unfair dismissal claims.
0: So, I mean, it strikes me that the impact of a day one right not to be unfairly dismissed combined with the potential for uncapped compensation and a new single worker status c- could actually be quite profound. And in fact, might have some unintended consequences in terms of the willingness of employers to bolster their workforces or at least to take a chance on a prospective new hire.
1: Yes, Tim, I, I, I agree with that. I think this would mark a real change from the not-so-distant past, at least for some of us, uh, where all claims, even claims for discrimination, were capped at a very modest amount. Now an immediate and perhaps knee-jerk reaction to this is that it will open the floodgates to such claims. What's the purpose of these changes? Well, I think it's simply to make employment more secure for workers, and of course there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I think you're right, Tim, I think employers could face real dilemmas when making new hires. If there's no alternative to employment and all employees have day one rights, will that indeed make employers used to a very different regime, more reluctant to hire at all? You could find that many choose to hire via employment agencies or indeed look to outsourced or offshore models. Great for the lawyers, but perhaps not so good for employers. But I think, Sean, you may actually have a counter to my floodgates argument.
2: Well, I think it's worth remembering that the latest figures from the Tribunal Service show that the median unfair dismissal compensation award is only £12,000, which obviously is a lot of money for some people. But in the normal course of events, we would also expect an employee to be able to pick up another job well within a year. And that's relevant because that's the point at which their losses would end and the tribunal would stop in terms of considering compensation. And what that means is a is maximum amount of compensation usually amounts to one year's salary. It might actually be the case that employees bringing claims are unlikely to be awarded a greater amount with no cap on compensation than they would at the moment.
0: Yeah, and that's going to be horses for courses, obviously, depending on the nature of the individual and, and the client in question. I mean, before we come back to that, which I think we should, um, Sean, are there any other proposals that should be on our listeners' radars?
2: Yes, there's a couple of other interesting proposals I wanted to mention. And the first is essentially a proposal to ban zero hours contracts. And Angela Rayner repeated this on Sunday in her speech. The Green Paper talks of requiring minimum hours to be available for workers on these sorts of contracts we've previously been thought of as zero hours contracts. But it is worth remembering the key feature of these arrangements, and arguably one reason why so many are employed in this way, is that individuals themselves on zero hours contracts often have the freedom to pick and choose when and for whom they make themselves available. Zero hours contracts can be in any sector, and individuals working under zero hours contracts can be either workers, or employees and we often see workers on zero hours contracts in hospitality or care sectors and it's not uncommon for individuals to have multiple zero hours contracts at the same time. So this is another area in which the logistics of how this would work are not quite clear at the moment. Would this proposal from Labour require individuals to work for a minimum number of hours if this is offered to them or does the ban simply operate one way? Um, Interestingly, contracts without any minimum hours were banned in New Zealand in 2016. And the next proposal I wanted to mention is this proposal designed to narrow the gender pay gap. Now, obviously, narrowing the gender pay gap in itself is laudable. It's not that radical as an objective. How it's done is the key. And this is another area where there could be convergence with the EU. So in the EU, there's a new Equal Pay Transparency Directive, which has a similar objective, but has potentially radical consequences for employers in the EU in the area of equal pay. And in that context, the meaning of the somewhat cryptic statement in the Green Paper that equal pay comparisons could be made across companies is is far from clear. Um, does it mean that all women doing a particular kind of work to, are to be paid at the highest rate paid to men doing a similar kind of work or work of an equal value at a different employer? I mean, that potentially raises the specter of challenges from a competition and an antitrust perspective. Perhaps it's simply a reference to allowing claimants to choose comparators uh, employed by other employers, but where they can identify uh, a single source. That means a legal entity which is deemed to be responsible for the inequality arising and which is able to eradicate it. If that is is in fact what Labour are referring to, our current government has already recently said it's going to pass legislation to bring this into effect shortly. So it might be the case that this particular proposal um, is going to be redundant. And the final thing I wanted to mention is the proposed right to disconnect and rights to restrict employer surveillance of workers. Again, potentially nothing really radical here, but it's perhaps no accident that these are also EU initiatives.
0: Thanks, Sean. And, and you say nothing particularly radical, but I mean, I think actually, if if even a few of these proposals actually come into effect, I think that the cumulative effect of that could actually be quite significant in the way in which employers approach employment in the UK going forward. And uh, I think it could be quite a sea change, actually. So quite quite a fair bit of th- food for thought in that. Um, Peter, you said earlier that uh, Angela Rayner also wanted to improve the position for trade unions. So So what caught your eye on that front?
1: Well, a number of things, but uh, firstly, I think that this is also an area which could present radical challenges for employers. I think we'll cover that more in our second part of our podcast, but just to look for the time being at what's already on the table. And this is really where Angela Rayner, I think has warmed to her theme. Um, No surprises at all that uh, Labour intends to scrap recent Tory laws. They're seen on the left as being simply driven by antipathy to trade unions. And I'm talking here about the requirement that minimum service levels be provided during industrial action in certain key sectors. Uh, And a second requirement, this goes back to the 2016 Trade Union Act, again in the area of important public services, that strikes be endorsed by at least 40% of those entitled to vote irrespective of the number of those who do actually vote to support the action. And you can see immediately that's actually quite a high bar. And in fact, it's operated to prevent a number of strikes from taking place. And again, little surprise that uh, Labour intends to make it easier for trade unions to secure collective bargaining rights in businesses where they currently have no presence. And to do this via the statutory recognition regime introduced by the Blair government in the late 1990s. Now, that's one of the areas that could have significant consequences for businesses that do not have a union presence and very much wish to keep it that way. And there are a few of them. As I say, we'll look at this more in part two of the podcast. The other eye-catching proposal in this area is the ban on fire and rehire this has been really well trailed in the press it was repeated again by angela rayner in her speech on sunday we'll look at this in more detail in part two but for now i think it's worth noting a couple of things firstly a complete ban on firing and rehiring would to my mind logically lead to more redundancies And this is because employers won't be able to offer continued employment to those they feel they have to dismiss because they can't afford the existing terms and that seems rather counterintuitive for a government that's trying to preserve employment the other factor to put into the mix here is that next spring the supreme court is going to be looking at the existing ability under the existing laws of businesses to fire and rehire in the context of an ongoing dispute between Usdor, the shop workers union and Tesco, so that the outcome of that case may help inform the debate. Finally, I referred earlier on to the green paper referring to the wish to widen the use of collective bargaining and this is partly as a way of ensuring minimum employment standards across sectors via so-called fair pay agreements, and secondly because this is seen as an effective and of course union-friendly method of negotiating terms and conditions. This is a very continental approach, certainly France comes to mind in this respect, but it's actually the model introduced by the centre-left New Zealand administration rather than the EU, which is cited as the inspiration. In fact, as far as I can see, aspiration rather than inspiration seems to be the opposite word. And again, very little detail is given as to how all this is going to work. Now, Tim, I think you picked out something that could be important for any business wanting to win contracts to do business with a future Labour government.
0: Yeah, I mean, what caught my eye there was the way in which Labour intends to use the government's procurement powers. And and ironically, I think this is one area where it might be able to exploit Brexit for its own benefit. Um, Whereas the Conservative approach to uh, procurement has been very cost and value for money driven, Labour's proposing something else. It's proposing to use its procurement powers to promote high employment standards. So the businesses are able to, uh, those businesses, sorry, that are able to check off a tick list in relation to treating their workers well, uh, recognizing trade unions, uh, having equality rights and implementing high environmental standards, as well as being fully tax compliant, whatever that might mean, will be in a stronger position to win government contracts. And there's also a stated preference to grant contracts to British businesses. Now, that's clearly aligned with the ESG agenda, and particularly the S, uh, social, which covers effective employment and human rights, and something that we'll be speaking about in another podcast later. But with a further nod to Europe here, it's particularly reminiscent of the new sustainability regulations recently introduced by the EU. Uh, Well, I think we've probably covered quite a lot in this podcast, so I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, I hope you've all found um, some of our reading of the tea leaves or coffee grounds, if you prefer, interesting and helpful. Green papers are often aspirational, not inspirational in nature, and designed to test what's likely to land best with the electorate, as well as what's actually achievable. You may consider there is a degree of cynicism in some of the headline-grabbing announcements. In our next podcast, we're gonna focus on which of the proposals we actually feel are likely to be pursued. Uh, as well as how they might be adapted and adopted. Uh, We'll look at the consequences of the proposals for claims by high earners. Uh, And I said I wanted to come back to that. And that will include looking at whether the changes could in fact lead to fewer discrimination and whistleblowing claims. And how the tribunals will cope with a materially higher number of claims being brought. We'll also spend a little bit of time on which topics of interest like restrictive covenants, have not, and let's uh, assume potentially deliberately, so far featured in the talks or papers at all. So time to go and wash up your mug. Uh, Look out for part two of this Espresso podcast uh, landing, and we look forward to welcoming you back shortly. So goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.